So that was a very difficult Old Testament reading. Um, and, um, and, and maybe in some ways what you wouldn't expect to, to be read in church. Um, but it's really important as, as we come to our, our passage today from the book of Luke. Because at, at Hope, we work our way section by section through, through books of the Bible. And, and each week, we'll, we use a, an Old Testament passage that, that really relates and, and shines light on the text that we're looking at um, in, the, in the New Testament. And, and so if you, if you have a, a Bible, uh, turn to Luke chapter 8. And this is on page 866, if you're, if you're using the, the Pew Bible. And, and if you've been with us over the last three weeks, um, you, you'll notice that I ever, at the beginning I've stated the theme of this section each time, that, that this, this section is really looking at the power and the authority of Jesus. So two weeks ago, we looked at the, the power and the authority of Jesus over nature. As the disciples headed out across the Sea of Galilee, a huge storm blew in, and, and then the, the disciples thought that they were going to die, and then Jesus calmed the storm, and then the disciples were afraid, <laughs> for, afraid before, afraid afterwards. But this reverent, holy awe at Jesus as one who could command nature. And the, and the big takeaway from it was Jesus is sovereign over nature itself. He's, he has power. Therefore, we don't have to be afraid of anything, any natural force that we might face. Then last week, we looked at the authority and the power of Jesus over forces of evil and darkness. And we talked about the fact that there is such a thing as spiritual evil. And Jesus confronts it. He confronts a man who is in bondage to to demons, to spiritual evil, and Jesus casts it out, thereby showing, again, power and authority over all powers of darkness. And you say, well, what's what's the takeaway? Therefore, we don't have to be afraid of any spiritual darkness that may come our way because Jesus is more powerful and he's in, in control. But then today, we're, we're, we're the last installment of this is the, the authority and the power of Jesus over sickness and over death. Now you think of the, the last enemy, which is, is death. As Jesus heals somebody who is sick and, and raises someone from the dead in this, in this text. But you know, I, I, was, I was reflecting on this, this, this idea of, of, of thinking about sickness and death. And, and if you know me, I like reading old books that were ret- written by dead people. <laughs> and um, actually, our intern, Jonathan Hatt, was giving me a hard time the other day. that I, He says, you need to read more books that were written now. You read too many old books. Um, but one of the things that I, I love, especially about theological books from generations prior, is I think that they, they lived at a time where they weren't separate as much from the reality of, of death and sickness. That even for us, it's there, but you know, death happens in hospitals or in, in, in hospice, and we don't always see it in the way that people did at that time. Same thing with disease. Even animal death is something we don't see as much um, as you know, people who would be on a, on a farm and, and would see the, the process. It just ends up in our, in our grocery store. But, in, but I think that the older authors saw just so clearly how uh, fleeting life is and the reality of death and sickness and that, and that our hope can't really be founded here in this life. That if our, if our hope is only here, that we're above all people most to be pitied. And so, so they did just a, a beautiful job. They talked way more about the reality of heaven, what is the hope that we have, 
They, they talked a lot more about how it is that we actually face death and suffering. Uh, they, they dealt with the idea of sickness and saying, no, our, our hope for life isn't now in a, in a world that so often is full of tears, but we actually have a, a hope that is greater than anything that we, we face. And I, and I say all of that because uh, this, this passage from, from Luke shows us how that hope is possible, how we can have true and lasting hope in the face of, of sickness and of death. So again, this is uh, Luke chapter 8 beginning in verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And Jesus went, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately the discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are surrounding you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was no longer hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people, why she had touched him, and how she had immediately been healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James, and the father of the mother and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But she said, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And, and her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for your sovereignty, your, your power over life and death itself. And Lord, we ask that you would use this text to, to strengthen our confidence to face sickness or to face death, knowing the power of your Son. Lord, we pray for your Spirit's guidance today. In Jesus' name, amen. So you'll notice that 
this passage starts with this man, Jairus, coming to Jesus. Um, and he's, he's completely desperate. It says that he was religious. He was the ruler of the local synagogue, so he was an influential person. But he had also hit rock bottom. It says that his, his daughter, his only daughter, was sick and was at the point of death. And so he had, he had probably heard of Jesus, heard that Jesus had the power to heal. And so he, he thought, well, maybe Jesus can help. This is the, the last-ditch effort to try something to save his daughter. So he comes before Jesus, falls down, and then it just implores him to come and heal his only daughter. And so Jesus agrees. They, they head out together to this man's home. But then it's interesting. There, there's this little section where it, it changes gears, and then all of a sudden we're confronted with an, another person who's also in a desperate situation. And it's this woman we see in verse 43, if you look there in your Bible. It says that there, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. And so this woman is suffering terribly. And we get a hint at the, the level and the degree of her suffering. She was suffering physically. The, the text says that she had dealt with a, a flow of blood for 12 years. And most commentaries think that it was probably some kind of uterine hemorrhage that she was facing that would have been dangerous, painful, uncomfortable, potentially life-threatening, a, a really difficult thing to face for that long. But then also, it wasn't just that she was suffering physically, she was also suffering financially. It says that she had spent all of her money on doctors, on physicians, on medical remedies, but nothing at all was able to help her from this desperate situation. And so, I mean, I think it shows that it's, it's not just the modern medical system that is broken. I mean, the ancient medical system was broken um, as well, that, that somebody can pour everything trying to find some answer to what is going on for them physically, but it seems like no answer is possible. But then third, she was suffering socially. Uh, and, and we see this really in light of the Old Testament passage that, that you heard read earlier. You know, as I said, it, it's, a, it's a difficult passage from the book of Leviticus. Um, and, and especially if you're unfamiliar with the, the Bible, it can be hard to understand you know, why that um, is there. And, but it, it's really important for understanding the, the level of, of suffering and, and where this woman was in her life. Because in the, the Old Testament, uh, worship centered around the, the, the temple. There was the temple in Jerusalem, the, the tabernacle before that, and, and that was essentially a, a visible picture of humanity's relationship to God. And so it was, it was a place of worship that, that essentially, by the way that it, it was designed, told a story about who God is and who humanity is. That at the very center was the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go once a year, and that only with, with blood. And then going out from that uh, were, were other rings of, of courts. And, and, and so the, the idea was that God is supremely perfect and supremely holy. And anything that is, that is, is not perfect, is unholy, can't approach God in worship. And, and so there needed to be an idea of, of cleansing, of being made clean 
in order to come before God. And then also in the Old Testament, then there, there, were, there were two different types of, of cleansing that you can think about, two different ways that, that we could, it talks about somebody being made clean. And so the one was a, was a moral cleansing, uh, forgiveness of, of sins from the, from the way that we have sinned against God, fallen short of his standards, you know, as we confessed in our, our confession of sin today, uh, because the, the wages of sin is death, according to the Bible. And, and the Bible says that without the, the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so the idea was that for unholy people to approach a holy God in worship, to enter into the temple, that there had to be sacrifice. And so they would sacrifice animals, and then the blood of the sacrifices would point to a spiritual reality of, of how God forgives sins and cleanses us cleanses us, and it was this picture pointing forward to the work of Christ, ultimately to his once and for all sacrifice on the cross that, that washes us and, and makes us pure and clean and, and whiter than snow in him. But then there was another aspect, which was a, a ceremonial cleansing to approach God. And, and so, for instance, if you, if you read the book of Leviticus, there's all sorts of things that would make somebody unclean. <laughs> Um, and an example of this would be uh, leprosy or a skin disease. So somebody who had, a, uh, had leprosy, a skin disease, uh, they, they weren't allowed to attend temple worship. Um, they, they weren't allowed to touch anyone else who was going to temple worship. Um, and there, there was a potentially a, a health reason for that, that, that God made provision for an ancient people who didn't understand medicine of, of actually keeping diseases from spreading among the community. Uh, but also, there, there is a, a religious reason, which is what we're talking about, this idea of the worship of God. Because what God was, was doing in the, in the picture of the temple wasn't just creating a, he wasn't being cruel, he wasn't being unkind, but he, he was showing us who he is and how he, he deals with the world. And so if, if it's a picture that is saying that, that God is not going to allow into his, his presence something that is unclean morally, sin, that there must be forgiveness. But then also, God didn't allow anything that was the effect of sin in his presence either. So something that in and of itself is not sinful, but was, was a consequence of, of living in a, in a sinful world. So that would be, you know, dead bodies. They're not sinful. But death is a consequence of being in a, in a sinful world, or, or diseases, or, or bodily fluids, or the flow of, of blood, as we see in the, that passage uh, from Leviticus 15. And so, so, you, so, so we look at this, this woman living in a Jewish society that is following Leviticus 15, and, and, and just if we begin to imagine that where, where she was, you know, even if you can say, Okay, God had a purpose in his sovereignty to the picture of the new heavens and new earth, that the, the reality of prolonged hemorrhage is not the reality of new heavens and new earth. And so the temple is a picture of the, the perfection of God that, that we're, we're longing to. But yet still, where she was, that she was, she was cut off from, from people around her. She was suffering. She was unable to, to touch or to, to be touched. She was... You know, unable to, to engage in society and just imagine living the way that she had to live. I mean, saying that, that if she touched anything else, she would make other things unclean. So she, 
I mean, I'm sure that this was something just constantly that she had to, to think about. And, and just the, the level of, of suffering and pain that she was facing. And I think that, that potentially some of you have an idea of that kind of, of suffering and pain. That, that, that maybe it's not exactly what she's facing, but so often our lives can be this cocktail of, of suffering in different ways. Where, where you, you take different aspects of suffering and, and you mix it up together, and that's what we, what we face in our lives. And so I mean, some of you might be in the place where you're suffering physically. It could be cancer, it could be back pain, it could be some other illness, and it, it's going on and on, and you're wondering, is there any release, any kind of um, way to be healed of this? Or maybe some of you are in the place of suffering financially, of saying, I, I've spent all that I have. I don't know how I'm going to, to make ends meet. Or, or maybe it's at, at the place of, of suffering socially, where you feel, for whatever reason, cut off from relationships or cut off from community. Or maybe even the way that she did, somehow cut off from community of faith, maybe an outsider to the church or outsider. You always feel like you're, other people are, are worshiping, but you're looking on from the outside. And so what do you do when that's you in any one of those places of suffering? Well, I think that, that this woman shows us where to turn, where to look for hope in life. It's like Jairus, uh, the man who came for Jesus to heal his daughter. She probably had heard rumors about Jesus. She had heard that he had the power to heal. And, and you know, maybe she began mulling over in her head, how am I going to actually get to Jesus for him to heal me? And then thinking, okay, this is, it would be embarrassing. How am I going to go before this great prophet and this great religious leader to explain wh where I am? I'm, I'm unclean. I, I feel as an outcast in society. How am I going to come to Jesus? And she became convinced in her mind that if I can only touch just the fringe of his garment, I will be made well. And, and you know, maybe there's an element of even superstition in that. But yet, w w as we'll see it unfold, that there's this, this element of faith where, where she is, is recognizing Jesus can make a difference in my life. And if I go to him, if I lay hold of him, he can make me well. But I think then that she was probably really discouraged as she came uh, you know, expecting to, to be healed by Jesus, but then this crowd is coming in around Jesus, and she's thinking, am I going to be able to get close enough to even grab the fringe of his garment? How am I going to get there? And, and so you know, she could have been afraid of, of touching others, going um, through the crowd, or, or being rejected by Jesus in some way. But there again, she had, she had this, this seed of faith that said, no, I'm going to press forward to get to Jesus. And so she, you know, whether she covered her face or the commotion, no one recognized her, we don't know, uh, that, that she made it to Jesus. And then, and then you can just picture her just reaching out her hands. You, know, you see Orthodox Jewish men have uh, fringes of their garment that hang down, um, and that's probably what it was. And look at verse 44. It says, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And so normally, the way that 
the laws of uncleanness worked in the Old Testament is an unclean person touches something that's clean, then the, the thing that was touched becomes unclean. But with Jesus here, it, it works in the opposite direction, where, where she touches Jesus, and she is the one who is made clean. And, and really, this is pointing at the, this great exchange that is at the very heart of the gospel. What is Christianity is about? It's about an exchange where, where Jesus comes into the world, takes on himself a human nature, and that by, by then touching humanity, he takes our uncleanness on himself. He takes our sin, our diseases onto himself. And ultimately, the picture of Jesus taking our uncleanness and our sin and our diseases is the cross, where Jesus suffers and dies in our place. But then in return, he, he cleanses us. He, he makes us pure. He, he gives us his righteousness. He clothes our, our nakedness and our shame, and he gives us his perfect righteousness. And, and that's what happened to her. She, she touches Jesus in faith. She is, is made clean. But then I think that there may have been this second moment of terror that she faces, because after she, she touches and she's made clean, the flow of blood ceases, Jesus stops and said, who touched me? And, and, and so he, and it says that everybody else was, was denying it. He was looking around. And, and it's, it's funny because the disciples almost start kind of giving Jesus a hard time, <laughs> saying, Jesus, everybody's around you pressing in on you. And you say, who touched me? I mean, obviously, you don't know. There's so many people... Uh, but then Jesus clarifies and he says, no, I, somebody touched me because I felt power go out from myself. And, it, and it's not that Jesus is a battery that gets drained, but, it, but rather the, the, the power of God going forth from him, that he was in control. He was aware of what, what was happening around him. So then why does he say, who touched me? Did he know who had touched him? And, and that, there's, there's mystery there. Because if you look in the, in the New Testament, there, Jesus is fully God and fully man in one person, two natures. And, and there's times where, according to his human nature, the Bible talks about Jesus not knowing things. It says no one knows the day or the hour, not even the sun. It's, it says that as he was growing up, he grew in wisdom and knowledge because he was truly human. He had a finite mind. But then also he's fully God, so he knows everything <laughs> by definition of being God, and he knows all things. And, and the way that those things fit together, we can never understand. But yet we see different aspects of his true humanity and divinity coming to the surface at different places in his ministry. And so here, and, and this is my own opinion, but I think he knew who had touched him. Um, and, and that he is asking who touched me, and essentially to sort of draw her out. <laughs> It's like God does when he goes to Adam and Eve after they, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, where are you? It's not that he didn't know, but he, he's, he's you know, the, this teacher drawing the person out. And he wasn't drawing her out to put her on the spot and embarrass her, but rather to use her faith as an example for the people there, an example for us. Look at verse 47. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden... She came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she'd been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith 
has made you well. Go in peace. And so you see here that she, she realized I can't hide. She comes forward. She, she tells everyone how she was healed. And then Jesus tells her how she was healed. Um, that that, that the, the way in which she was healed was through faith. He says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And, and really what that what that's doing is, is confirming just the central theme of the Bible. How is it that we are cleansed by Jesus? How is it that we are made well? And it's not through following a list of rules. It's not through ceremonies. It's not just by going to church. It's not by giving money. It, it's not through some sort of religious guru or some kind of magical spell. But it, it's through faith. That, that it, and faith is, is, is that act of, of reaching out and taking hold of Jesus through faith. That is what faith is, saying, I, I desperately need you in my life, and I believe that, that you are able to help me and to save me. And so I think that then she's a, a powerful example for us because you, you look at your life and, and you see, you see the, the suffering, you see the sin, you see it, and you think, would, he, would God welcome me if I came before him? Will he accept me or will he reject me? But if we reach out and we take hold of him by faith, that, that he promises that he will make us well. And, and really, that, that being made well has, a, has an already part and then a not yet part. Because you, you reach out by faith, you lay hold of Jesus, and there's a way in which you're immediately healed and made well. And the already is, is sometimes invisible and spiritual, that you're, you're forgiven immediately through the blood of Christ. Uh, you're declared righteous in his sight. You're adopted into the family of God. The, the Holy Spirit enters your, your life and begins conforming you more and more to the image of Christ. But then there's also a, a not yet aspect. You lay hold of Christ by faith. And, and yes, there are times where Jesus physically heals you now. That's what this woman experienced. She laid hold of Christ, immediate physical healing. And I believe that, that it's appropriate in, in our world today to, to pray for God to, to heal us and that God does and there's times where God defies what ma modern medicine can do and, and will genuinely heal us but, but yet that kind of a, of a healing is not guaranteed in the Bible that there are plenty of believers who, who reach out in faith lay hold of Christ experience forgiveness but then are still suffering there's still disease there's still depression they're still facing suffering, whether physically or financially or relationally or religiously, like, like this woman. But then what, what this text is saying then is that, that Jesus has the authority and the power to heal. And so as we, as we lay hold of Christ, even if that, that answer of perfect physical healing doesn't come immediately, that, that it's something that is ours in Christ, that we have the promise of, of complete wholeness, complete resurrection. And, and that's why the, the promise of in Scripture that the Christian hope isn't to be just disembodied spirits out on a cloud somewhere, but the, the hope that's presented in the Bible is, is resurrection life, to, to share in, in the new heavens, in the new earth, in, in, in glory and in bodies that, that, that no longer face the, the suffering and, and the pain that we have here today. And and that we, we know that Jesus can do it because he, he does it here, and therefore we can trust him 
with whatever we're facing in our lives. But then as we, we return to our, our, our text, though, um, I think we've, we've probably forgotten somebody who's, who's there. Because <laughs> uh, remember that, that Jairus is, has been here this whole time, waiting for Jesus. And, um, and I don't know if you've ever had that where you're, you really need to get somewhere and somebody's just talking and does not seem to be in a hurry at all. And you're just completely frustrated by the situation. And, and I'll bet you that's what he was feeling because thinking, okay, I know this woman is in a desperate situation, but she has waited 12 years to be healed. She can wait one more day. But my daughter is dying, and every second is going to count here. And so, so Jesus, why are you stopping? Why are you encouraging this woman? Why are we still here? But then, as I'm sure that's what he was, he was thinking, his worst feel, fears are realized. Look at verse 50. It says, While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. And so the messenger is saying, It's too late. Jesus, he has a lot of power. He can heal people. But the, the power of death is ultimate. There's no way that this guy could have any sort of authority and power here and so you need to stop wasting his time and, and just send him home. But then look at how, how, how Jesus responds to that. He says, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And, and I, I love that, just the simplicity of it. Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And I, and I don't think that Jesus said those words only for the people there, or only for for Jairus, but I think that he said those, those words to, to sit in, in scripture for, for all of time for those who will face the prospect of complete hopelessness and, and to, to look death in the face and then that Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. She will be healed. And, and I even you know, thought about doing a little three-point sermon on that uh, because you know, point one would be do not fear. And Jesus is saying, I'm in control. I'm sovereign over death. So you don't need to be of any, afraid of anything that you'll face. And then point two is only believe. How are you going to be saved? Trust in me. And if you trust in me, if you only reach out and, and, and touch me, that I can save you and I can redeem you and I can heal you. And then point three, she will be well. And Jesus is saying there is hope. There's hope beyond life. There's hope beyond death. There's hope that that you may not in the moment believe is possible, but it's, it's really there. And so you can hold on to it because of my life, death, and resurrection that conquered death once and for all. And apparently then, Jairus listened to that little mini-sermon uh, from Jesus' words because they, they continue together. He doesn't send Jesus away. His faith, probably though weak, is still there. And so, so look at what we see in verse 51 as they approach this tragic scene it says and when he came to the house he allowed no one to enter with him except peter and john and james and the father and mother of the child and all were weeping and mourning for her but he said do not weep for she is not dead but sleeping and they all laughed at him knowing that she was dead. And so they, they show up, they enter the house, and 
And it's the, the tragic scene. I mean, we, we probably have all seen this. You go into the funeral home and you see the people cry. You see the, the despair, the sadness over the, the death of a loved one, especially for a 12-year-old girl. And then Jesus says, she's not dead, she's sleeping. And, and people, it says that they laugh at him because he hasn't even seen her. And, you know, ancient people maybe didn't know much about science, but they knew when somebody was dead. <laughs> and they, they knew how final death was. And, and so what Jesus isn't saying by saying she's sleeping, she's, he's not saying you misdiagnosed her, but rather he, he's giving us just an insight into his theology of, of death. Because death, according to the Bible, isn't the ultimate end. And, and if you're at the place where, where you're, you're not sure if God is there, or, or maybe you're at the place of saying, hey, I'm an atheist, I'm an agnostic, that, that, that you would say, yeah, death is really the end. You close your eyes and that's it. There's nothing beyond, at least nothing that we can know. But, but for scripture, that, that's not the, the way that it is. And listen to just a, a few passages that, that speak to this. Uh, the book of Acts 24:15 says, there will be a resurrection both of the just and of the unjust. Daniel in the Old Testament, chapter 12, verse 2 says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Then the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so from those passages, you can see what, what the, the Bible is envisioning, that, that for everyone, there's a resurrection of the just and the unjust coming before the, the judgment seat of, of Christ to, to give an account. And so it, at the very least, what the Bible is saying is, you know, death is not the, the very last installment, that there's, there's, there are chapters beyond death for, for everyone, and that ultimately then Jesus has authority and power over death, that he, it's not ultimate, it's not the end, but he is in complete control. Because look what he does in verse 54. It says, but taking her by the hand, called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something um, should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, and he charged them to tell no one what had happened. And so Jesus he, he raises her from the dead, tells them to bring food. Um, and, and so I think as we, as we look at this, and, and just our, our last section here of our, of our time, I think the question that, that we probably should be asking from a passage like this is, is this something that we should expect to see in, in the Christian life today? Like if your loved one dies, are you praying for them to be raised up from the dead. How do we think about this, this biblically? And, and I think that it, it's helpful to just look at how, how the Bible talks about this as a whole. So there, there are eight times, not counting the resurrection of Jesus, where it, it talks about people being raised from death. Uh, there are three in the Old Testament, three in the, the ministry of Jesus, and then two from the apostles after the time of, of Christ. So, so not actually a lot. So I think that, that that's kind of the first lesson is it's pretty unusual in the Bible. And so it, it should be unusual today um, as well. But then also, 
it's important to distinguish between what you could call recitation, um, resuscitation rather. I can't say, I, I, I practiced that word. I kept saying it wrong at home. Resuscitation. <laughs> not recitation. We're not singing. Um, resuscitation from resurrection. Um, because the, all of those, those eight examples in the Bible, somebody was raised from the dead, but then they ended up dying later on at some point. And we don't know how they died, but they're not alive today. And so it was essentially like a temporary picture of God's victory over death, but it wasn't the final ultimate hope because it, it still ended up in the end leading to death. And you say, well, why did, why did God do that? Why did Jesus raise this girl if she eventually died at some point in the future? And I think that, that what it is, is is Jesus is pointing to his, his power and his sovereignty over death itself. And that ultimately our hope isn't that kind of resuscitation, um, but our, our hope and our promise is resurrection like Christ's resurrection. Because really Jesus is the only one in the Bible who is truly resurrected. Because he died and then came back to life, and the life that he took on was a life that wasn't just like the life he had before, that, that he had a resurrection body that was still physical, it was still real, but it was, it was glorious. It was, it was something that we can't imagine. It's like the, the acorn to the, the oak tree, right? That, that there's a connection, but it's, it's totally different. And, and listen to what the Apostle Paul says about our hope of resurrection in Philippians 3. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. And so what that's saying is that, that for, for you and for me in Christ, the promise is far better than what this girl was able to experience here. We're, we're, we have the hint of Christ's power so we can trust him when we face death. But, but our hope is, is, a, is a glorious resurrection body, like Christ's resurrection body, that, that, that won't fade, that won't grow old, um, that won't die. And, and so in that light, we can have complete confidence to face death, which is why the Apostle Paul can actually mock death and say, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, the power of death is the law, but thanks be to the God, to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see the way in which he gives us victory here in this, this meal, that, that we have, have victory in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And, and we have the victory because he, he entered the world and he took on himself a true human nature the Bible says he, he has borne our diseases and our infirmities. And, and so when he was with his disciples, he said, this is my body, this is my blood. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die taking on your sin, your uncleanness. And through that death, as you trust in me, you'll have life and the promise, yes, of forgiveness now, but ultimate resurrection, sharing with Christ, victory over the final power of death that we all fear by nature. So this is a, a, picture, a picture of that victory.